We are just a handful of weeks away from Easter. We find ourselves in this season of Lent. And we've made it our goal in this Lenten season to identify ourselves more closely with Jesus. We want to continue to try to answer the question, who am I, the question of our identity, by looking at the identity of Jesus. And so we answer, who am I, with the I am's of Jesus. And we're making our way through John's gospel in particular, who gives us these very clear proclamations that Jesus uh, uses to describe himself. Last week, We saw that Jesus said he is the bread of life that we must feed on. We must depend on even, you know, more than than bread itself. We feed on the living word of God. This morning we are going to look at John 9, where we get the second of these I am statements, where Jesus says he is the light of the world. So let me encourage you to turn to John 9. Have have that ready uh, in your Bible or on your phone if that's how you're following along. But we'll we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Many of you uh, may be at least somewhat familiar with the story of John Newton. Bits and pieces, at least, of, of who he is, his biography. Newton was born in England in the 18th century. And as a young man, he made his career as a sailor, initially as, as a crewman, and then eventually as a captain of a ship that made its living in uh, the trade of slaves back and forth from the British colonies. It was during one of these voyages on a ship bearing slaves that Newton was caught up in a very dramatic storm. He nearly lost his life at sea. But it was that moment that became a turning point in his own journey, uh, a place where he rediscovered his faith in Jesus Christ and, and made a vow, made a confession, a new confession of faith to follow him. As that faith deepened, Newton would eventually become one of the leading voices of the abolitionist movement in England uh, to ban the sale and trade of slaves, uh, to outlaw it throughout the British Empire. He also would become uh, a leading voice in the evangelical movement within the church and eventually became a priest uh, within, within the Church of England in his later years. Ironically, it was uh, as Newton was aging that his his actual eyesight began to fail. Uh, He was nearly blind by the time he died in the early 1800s. But as his his own physical sight began to fail, I think the way Newton could see himself came into sharper and increasing focus. And Newton was fond of, of saying he had great clarity about two things regarding his identity. He was deeply aware of how greatly he had sinned, and he was also deeply aware of how greatly Christ had saved him. He knew he was a sinner, but he knew deeply the salvation of Jesus Christ. And he was quoted near the end of his life uh, as saying, 
I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I might be. I am not what I wish or hope to be. And I am not what I once was. But I think I can truly say with the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a powerful way to express our identity. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Of course, we're more familiar with the way Newton sort of rephrased the same concept in giving the story of God's work in his life, uh, putting that into verse. And in the, the chorus, right, Amazing Grace, which Newton wrote, How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Newton lived that experience, right? He he knew where he had come from. He knew where grace had brought him to. And the sight that that grace had given him. And the, the last line there, I was blind, but now I see... Is, is one that Newton borrows generously from the Gospel of John. They are the words of another man who had a dramatic encounter with Jesus. And the result was that this man's identity was also brought into greater focus, greater clarity. So it's to his story that we want to turn and spend our time this morning. And as we open up to the Gospel of John, the ninth chapter, let me pray that the work of God's grace in us might also enable us to have a recovery of our true sight. That Jesus may help us to see ourselves as we truly are. Let me pray for us as we open God's word. Lord Jesus, we want to see you. We want to have open eyes. Lord, I pray that your living word, the scriptures this morning, would reflect brightly the image of the living God, Jesus, in who you are, that it would also reflect back to us our need to see ourselves as we are. Lord, may we, in our time with your word this morning, be able to say with John Newton that we are not what we once were. We are not all that we could have been, but by grace we are who we are today. We desire to become more and more like you. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John 9 opens on to, to Jesus' time in Jerusalem. Or actually comes, comes near the end of, of a season Jesus has spent in Jerusalem but one that began back in chapter 7. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, we see Jesus in Jerusalem in and around the high holy days. The season in in the fall, kind of autumn months, 
when there were a number of important festivals happening at the same time. The chief of those being the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he is increasingly making these bold statements about his identity. Just before this, he's in the Galilee. He says he is the bread of life that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. In John 7 and 8, he comes into the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles and proclaims himself living water, the fresh outpouring of God's spirit in a new way. And at the end of chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And all of these statements of identity cause the Pharisees to plot against Jesus. They're building their case against him. And at the end of chapter 8, they drive Jesus from the temple courts with stones in their hands. They're, they're ready to take the life of Jesus. But if the religious establishment isn't ready to hear what Jesus has to say, Jesus will take his message to the streets of Jerusalem. And that's where we see Jesus heading in John 9. Look with me at verses 1 through 5 to begin. As Jesus went along through Jerusalem, he saw a man blind from birth. And so his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed or seen in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I want us to listen carefully to the question the disciples ask here at the end of verse 2. They say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? Whose fault is it that this man was born blind? I think their question comes from an instinct that most of us have developed. Uh, a reaction to the problems that we see in our world. And we, at least this part of us, comes to assume that where there is a problem, where there is something broken, that that problem is likely an indication of God's punishment. God's punishment for our shortcoming or the way the, the disciples put it here, for our sin. When people lose jobs, when we suffer health problems, when someone undergoes a painful divorce, when we have a family crisis, there is nearly always at least something within us that wants to ask, what happened? Who sinned? Is there something, is there someone that's appropriate for us to blame? 
think part of the, the reason we ask the question in that way is because we want a kind of logic to the pain, to the brokenness, to the things that aren't the way they're, they're meant to be. We want to have this equation that says, this is why this happened. So that in turn, we, we can shield ourselves from the possibility of that happening to us if we stay on the right side of that equation, if we avoid doing or sinning in one particular way. Right? There's a safety in this question and in this logic that says, if I do this, then God must act in this way. We want an explanation for these things. And so the disciples are asking here for an explanation about this man's blindness. But in verse 3, notice that Jesus outright rejects this instinct. He, re he rejects this, this line of thinking, and he refuses to give a kind of karmic explanation as to why this man suffers from blindness. Instead, Jesus tells us that the man's family tree is ac actually shockingly normal. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned. So Jesus answers one question, but, but he sort of begs another question, right? He, he leaves us asking, well, if, if it wasn't this man, if it wasn't his parents that sinned, then Jesus, how do we explain why this man was born blind and we weren't? And yet again, I think that question assumes far too much. question is not, why was he born blind and we were not? It's to notice that perhaps blindness is a much more pervasive condition than we might let on. The Anglican missionary and commentator of the New Testament, Leslie Newbegin, says that in the Gospel of John, John wants us to see both in this particular miracle, but also throughout John's use of, 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 of light and darkness imagery around who Jesus is. He wants us to see how representative, Newbegin says, blindness is of the entire human situation. We're actually meant to see ourselves in this man's condition. Newbegin says, we have all been born in darkness. Right? Our humanity collectively, universally suffers from far-reaching, right? multi-faceted, congenital blindness. We're just at different stages of coming to terms with that blindness. And so as we begin in John 9 this morning, I think the question we have to ask ourselves first is, do we see ourselves as blind? Do we see ourselves as in need of what Jesus wants to bring? If we're not willing to, to read ourselves into this story in this man's condition, then we won't be able to receive the proclamation Jesus gives us in verse 5. Because what we need from Jesus is not an explanation about who sinned. What we need from Jesus is his illumination. We need to hear him say, While I am in 
the world. I am its light. We've been asking the question, who is Jesus? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to talk about who sinned or who didn't. I came into the world to reveal, to expose, to light things up. And in the the miracle which follows, we see what happens when the light of Jesus, the light of the world, comes into close contact with blindness. We see that beginning in verse 6. John's gospel tells us, after saying this, after Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Whenever we encounter Jesus dealing with blindness in the Gospels, and this isn't the only instance, right? There are other miracles similar to this one. Whenever Jesus encounters blindness, it seems that Jesus always gets up close and personal in these stories, right? In most cases, they're they're physical, right? Jesus gets closer than our comfort zones would typically allow. And here we're told Jesus takes his own spit saliva and he mixes it with the mud and he he applies it as an application to the man's eyes and then he sends him away to wash John wants us to notice I think not only the the close physicality almost the confrontation that happens here that Jesus breaks through a kind of barrier social barrier John also wants us to pay attention to where specifically this man is sent to wash. We're told that the blind man goes to the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, or just just outside Jerusalem. And that pool has deep significance, actually, for where we were just at in John 7, a few chapters before this, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, a few things happened. First of all, on one of the last nights of the festival, these massive lanterns were lit up in the temple courtyards. The people of God praised the God who led them through the wilderness in fire, pillar of fire. And Jesus, right on on the day after that, stands in the temple before all this happens and says, I am the light of the world. But even before that, on the last daytime day of the feast, the priest would travel from the temple courtyard. They would go down to this pool, the 
pool of Siloam. And they would fill large vessels full of water. And as they filled the jars, they would then carry them back in procession to the temple. And they would sing the song of Isaiah. Right? Therefore, with joy shall you draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would carry the water and they would pour it out on the altar in the temple. And it was their way of praying, of invoking the, the power of God to send his spirit afresh. To restore Israel in a new way. And on the day that that was happening, right, John 7. Jesus stood in the temple courts and he proclaimed, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink so that living waters might bubble up from within them. So Jesus has already told us he is the water of life, that he is the light of the world. And now Jesus sends this blind man to those same waters, to the pool of Siloam, so that a fresh dose of God's spirit might be poured out in his life. And we know that that happens because in verse 7 it says the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. In fact, the, the dose of God's spirit poured out on this man born blind was so great that when he gets hope, again, when he gets hope, when he gets home, there's actually an argument that breaks out among his neighbors who do not recognize him any longer. Look at verses 8 and 9. I think John uses intentionally a lot of language about sight or, or the inability to see. And so this man comes back. He's been given the miraculous gift of sight. And some of his neighbors say, this is the guy we used to see begging out on the streets as a, as a child, even into his, his adult years. What happened to him? And then there's another faction that says, no, 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 it only looks like, it only appears, resembles the same man. It could not be him. There's a dispute about what God could do, what's possible. But I love how the man himself jumps into the middle of this argument. And he does so by insisting, I am the man. It's really me, he says. Let me tell you about my new identity. And the words the man uses to settle this argument are actually words he borrows from Jesus' lips. The man says, ego emi, I am him. John's gospel is full of these beautiful connections on purpose. And I think this is, way, this is the way John is signaling to us that the I am, the ego emi identity of Jesus is what makes it possible for us to say, this is who I am. This is who I am intended to be. Because Jesus is the light of the world. Because Jesus can say, I am the light. 
then we can say, this is who I am. The light of Jesus reveals our identity. The light of Jesus gives us new vision for ourselves. It's the light of Jesus that enables this man and enables us to say, I'm not defined by my defect. I'm not defined by my sins or my past. I'm not even defined by the issues in my family of origin. Instead, what is true is that I am someone Jesus has caused to see. I'm someone who has been illuminated by the light of the world. Have you spent time before that light so that you might see who you truly are? Have you allowed Jesus, have you listened to his invitation to send you to that pool of living water, to wash in it, to drink from it, and to return seeing yourself with greater clarity? The light of the world has come to release his life in us, Jesus says. But that also represents a choice. We have a choice whether we look upon that light. We have a choice whether we welcome that light or whether we hide from it. Because Jesus, as the light of the world, both has the power to to reveal what is most true, what is most good, what God has created and, and would affirm in us. But Jesus, as the light of the world, also has the power to expose where our blind spots, where our hypocrisy remains. Jesus knows that sometimes we refuse to acknowledge him as the light of the world. And this is precisely how the Pharisees respond to this miracle. They try to manage to contain the light Jesus brings. Look at verse 24. This is picking up halfway through a, a second interview. The, the Pharisees keep interrogating this man and his family to find out how he received his sight. Verse 24. A second time the Pharisees summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. The man replied, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? If Jesus is the light of the world... And I think what we see here is that the quality of our vision, our sightedness is determined by what we do with that light. Either we see by it or we are blinded 
by it. The option that the Pharisees take here is, again, to shut out the light of Jesus and, and to try to go on seeing in their own darkness. They know better. They can explain it away. Anything but to acknowledge what the light would expose in them. And so we see in verse 24, the Pharisees, they've, they've made up their minds about Jesus. They know that he is a sinner because he heals on the Sabbath day. And so they will only accept testimony about Jesus that confirms their bias. But to see by the light of Jesus means that we have to be willing to expose our blindness. It means that we need to be willing also to receive that which is uncomfortable to acknowledge. That which is difficult to make sense of. Pharisees refuse to accept testimony, accept that which will condemn Jesus. But there in front of them stands a man with testimony. A man who has none of the theological training that these men enjoyed, but who alone can testify, I have seen Jesus. I have seen his light. I was blind. But now I see. And he says, if Jesus can do this, then won't you become, don't you want to become his disciples too? But they have too much invested, right, in their, their primary position. They have too much invested to protect, too many blind spots that they need to manage. And so to them, the light of Jesus proves a harsh one. It calls the identity, the identity they've constructed into question. And they're afraid to let that identity come apart. They're afraid to be exposed. And so we're told that they throw the man out. They throw out his testimony. They throw him out of the synagogue. And they do so so that they will never have to see him. They will never have to encounter that testimony or that witness again. But just as they throw him out, Jesus comes to him again. I want us to hear what Jesus says. I want us to finish with this this morning. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when, they, when he found him, he said... Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. I think the question John 9 poses for us is whether we want to see, whether we want to live in the light, whether we want to, to see with our own eyes the Son of Man and who he is, and then also to see our humanity in turn clearly, 
fully or whether in our fear we will remain blinded as the Pharisees are. This morning we have an invitation to see Jesus, to be sighted by him, to receive his light and his identity as we come to the table of our Lord. This morning, as we think about receiving the bread and the cup, it made me recall what happened on those days just after Easter morning on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, we're told that there were these companions who, who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They did not recognize him. They did not know him. But Jesus, as he went along with them, explained to them from the scriptures all that the Messiah would suffer before entering his glory. And at the end of that day, they sat down together with Jesus and they begged for this man that they they did not recognize to join them for the evening meal. They said, stay the night with us since it is getting late. And so he went into their home with them. And as they sat down to eat, He took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And Luke says, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This morning we are invited to receive those same gifts. To come to the table of Jesus. To break the bread with him and to drink from the cup with him. But this is not any bread and not any cup. This is the bread of his body. And the cup is the blood of his suffering for our sin. But they're gifts that he's given us as his people so that we might have eyes to see him and to see the world by him. If you desire to see by the light of Jesus, then these are the gifts of God for you, his people.